The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Mr. Alan Lewis. He is Vice President for Government Affairs, Stakeholder Relations, and Organic Compliance for Natural Grocers by Vitamin Cottage. While supporting its growth from 19 stores to the current 150-plus stores, Mr. Lewis has been involved in Natural Grocers' transformation from a mom-and-pop to a national chain. He is currently most focused on advocacy. This entails monitoring legislation and regulatory actions for dozens of issues that concern consumers. And to stay ahead of key issues, Mr. Lewis works at the local and federal level with policymakers, advocacy, and trade groups, and has helped create national coalitions for key causes, always standing with science and principle. Mr. Lewis also serves on many boards of directors, including the Non-GMO Project, the Organic and Natural Health Association, iFoam North America, the Real Organic Project, Green America's Carbon Farming Innovation Network, and more. His TED Talk on food betrayal, Don't Swallow the Lies, is not to be missed. And I will provide a link for our listeners to catch that excellent TED Talk. Welcome, Alan. Oh, thank you, Melinda. That's quite the introduction. I was wondering who you were talking about, and I realized... (laughs) No, you're quite accomplished, I have to say. I'm so happy to be here because I I look up to you so much, and you're such a strong, clear voice for these issues, and I really appreciate what you do. Well, thank you. And I rely on people like you to help keep me informed. So thank you. And I want to just let our listeners know that if you ever want the lowdown on controversial issues in the organic and natural foods industry, go to LinkedIn and see what Alan says about it first. So thank you for your ability to identify greenwash so clearly. You really target in on the people who are helping us swallow lies. So thank you. Before we dive into any issues about greenwash, I need to ask you how you got started in the natural foods marketplace? Well, I have always been a natural foods guy. I was raised by hippies on whole wheat toast with a single ingredient ground peanut butter. And some of that stuff wasn't all that delicious, but I didn't get to be tempted by all of the other addictive foods. And that was just part of the way I was growing up. And I think a lot of it has to do with my dad growing up on a farm in Kansas. And eventually the Dust Bowl and and the economy beat my family out of agriculture, which is how we ended up in Colorado. But that focus on eating from the garden, he brought that with him very seriously. More recently, though, Melinda, I have family members who were very, very ill. And these are the new onslaught of diseases that are tied to pollution and contamination of the human microbiome. So now it's not a lifestyle, which is a word I really disagree with. It's a survival style in terms of keeping the pollution and contamination 
out of your body and your environment and making sure that what you put in is nutritious and nutrient-dense and healthy for your particular situation. You know, what I find in my world of consumer education and my fellow dietitians is that we have been sold a bill of goods, that we have to consolidate the food system for efficiency and this idea of having cheap food. And people really don't understand the impact of consolidation and what has happened with the industrialization of food. So, for example, I don't think people connect the dots between this commodity food production and the sprays that go along with it. Oh, it's just horrendous. I would point to Iowa, where 100 years ago, my grandparents raised hogs on a biodiverse farm and sold those hogs to John Morrell Company in Ottumwa, Iowa. And they made enough money to, say, put my dad through school, and they survived almost 100 because they were so healthy and, and well-fed and had a very healthy day-to-day life. Now when you go to Iowa, it is a corn colony, and the corn is used for ethanol and hogs. 40,000 acres of concrete has been poured for hogs to live in confinement. Mm. And the corn and soy feed goes to the hogs. The hog poop ends up in these massive lagoons that end up in the Mississippi River, and that's contaminated with antibiotics, all the pesticide residues. That's not cheap food, right? That's food whose costs have been offloaded to the public, to the environment, and to the animal welfare. That's cheap food that costs my family their farm and their livelihood. So, yeah, that is just the propaganda campaign, as you pointed out. The reality is that we no longer have the state of Iowa. We have the agricultural economy of Iowa. And the producers of the corn and the soy and the hogs really have the legislatures of these states where these commodity crops are grown, they've got them by the neck, and we just can't seem to get ourselves out of it. Yeah, 90% of the waterways in Iowa, you can't drink in them, and most of them you can't even enter because they're so poisoned with agricultural waste. In Iowa in particular, because I follow it so closely, They're trying to outlaw solar installations in the state over any land that could be used for ethanol corn instead of solar. So I think that, you know, when we live in this world where we see this news and we track the legislature and we talk to the advocates on the ground and our heart sinks every day, like how can we be going backward this fast and this far in the year 2022? We know how to do this right, and it requires equitable access to markets, to credit, to land. We know how to do this, but the people who control it aren't going to let go without a fight. Yeah, exactly. And that brings me to a point that you made in the TED Talk. You said elitism is based on the economic exploitation of the American heartland. Because so many of us who advocate for what I call good food, food that isn't grown with pesticides and other chemical fertilizers that harm our water, we're often called elitists because we want this better 
food system. And that's so wrong. As you say, it's the great betrayal. Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I watch that talk now and then, and they take a shot of the audience while I'm pointing to them and say, you are the elitists who want a healthy food system. And the shock on people's faces when they connect these dots for how the propaganda campaign works against them, even though every motivation is to protect our kids, our animals, and our landscapes. And yet that is how they're defining elitism. So the point of that moment in my talk was to encourage people to be bold and to stand up and be educated and never apologize for advocating for a healthy environment and animal welfare. That's exactly right, Alan. You know, I look at water as our most important nutrient. And any farming system that contaminates water, there's got to be something wrong with that. We should absolutely reject it. What I also find, though, is that we are told, those of us who raise concerns about pesticide residues in foods, we're told we're promoting fear. In fact, there's a campaign by one of the big agricultural interests that says, facts, not fear. And what I say to that is, if you know the facts about what's going on in the heartland with regard to how we're producing our food, you would be crazy not to be afraid. Yeah, that's right. And I get called the fear monger every time I engage in public. And I just looked them in the eye and said, you're absolutely right. The new research on the microbiome, which only started 15 years ago, shows that the pesticides and synthetic fertilizers that you're promoting with your propaganda campaign are killing an entire generation of kids who grew up exposed to it. So yeah, I'm fear-mongering for the right reasons. And then I look them in the eye and say, how could you defend your practices knowing that it's your children and grandchildren who are going to pay the price? That changes the conversation very quickly. Well, for those of us who are trying to help people choose healthier foods, we can make certain recommendations. Then the consumer goes into the marketplace and they are faced with a lot of different food labels that are so confusing, people really don't know what to buy. And I wanted to reach out to you because you are so on top of these issues. So let's talk about the new label that just came out in 2022, and that is the GMO label, although it's not GMO. It's labeled bioengineered, which probably doesn't have a familiar ring to any consumer I know. Wow. That's the result of that terrible legislation that went through under the Obama administration, the National Bioengineered Food Disclosure Act. And then the USDA came in and wrote the rules for that, but the rules that the USDA wrote didn't correspond to the intent of Congress. And I'm glad you brought that up because Natural Grocers is actually a lead plaintiff in a massive federal lawsuit against the USDA. And recently the USDA backed off and said, oh, okay, you can call them using names that consumers actually are familiar with and understand, GMO and genetically engineered. You don't have to use this fake term bioengineered that we made up. Now, that's just a promise from the USDA, which is worth the digital pixels on your screen that they, that they sent it on. 
But you can see that even the USDA that wants to hide all of this for the get big, get out, cheap food agenda had to acknowledge that consumers know better and they were just looking silly by making the the rules say you could only call it bioengineered. Right. And then there's also that little code on packages, assuming that everyone has a cell phone and that they're going to actually look up what kinds of ingredients are in a particular food, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, that's that square full of little black and white checkerboards. That's called the QR code. And we have very solid data on that. The number of people who have a phone that can access that code and have wireless or have Wi-Fi access in order to do so and can afford to pay for that is maybe 60, 65% of the country. So the USDA wrote a rule that intentionally excluded a third of Americans from being able to find out how their food was produced. Again, it breaks your heart when you see these things happen over and over and over. Right. Well, the other label that's very confusing, I think, to consumers is the non-GMO label. And I thought you might want to weigh in on this because you are on the board of directors for the non-GMO project. So here's what I have discovered in my world, and that is that people assume that non-GMO label verification means no pesticides. And they're very surprised then when they find out that a non-GMO labeled loaf of bread, for example, has glyphosate residues. Right, right. Non-GMO doesn't mean it's organic. It, It means it's not conventional GMO. Now, I am fully in the camp of confusion because I always said that, man, Non-GMO Project is hiding conventional food, heavily sprayed with pesticides and fertilized with synthetic fossil fuel fertilizers and all of those ag concentration practices. And therefore, it really is a subterfuge that we need to avoid. Right. However... I got put in my place, and I forget who it was. It was likely one of the founders of the Non-GMO Project. I think she works at Erewhon in in Los Angeles now, and I ran into her and I said, I got a real problem with this. And she said, Alan, imagine if we didn't have that seal. Imagine if we didn't know what was non-GMO. If we didn't have the butterfly, everything would be genetically modified and we would have no way to know. That means that we would lose any ability to make change. We would have lost the entire battle. So the non-GMO project is 110% aware of what it does and what it doesn't do. But remember that now, as I've understood it and been on the board and worked with the people and worked with all of the companies that are using it, including natural grocers, that butterfly becomes incredibly important It certainly hasn't stopped the growth of organic, but it has given a price premium to farmers to avoid GMO corn, soy, sugar beets, which is the very first point of transition towards regenerative practices. Mm -hmm. So it is what it is, but Mm -hmm. it's a very important uh, seal and certification that we have in place. I'm glad you brought that up. That's really good to know. 
Alan, we've got to take a break because we're halfway through, and I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Mr. Alan Lewis. He is Vice President for Government Affairs, Stakeholder Relations, and Organic Compliance for Natural Grocers by Vitamin Cottage. I don't want to leave the non-GMO label yet because there is the non-GMO verified seal with the butterfly. There's also non-GMO just sort of splattered on labels, which reminds me of the day when we saw no cholesterol being splattered all over labels for things like (laughs) vegetable oils. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So if a person sees a non-GMO strawberry, for example, would they think, oh, well, there must be GMO strawberries then if there are non-GMO ones? Well, let's parse that question now. First of all, to get it out of the way, everything has been genetically modified now, and everything is entering the market as genetically modified. But because they can do it using gene editing, the USDA says that that's not GMO. I so see. there are genetically modified berries, trees, every crop. The difference is what's been commercialized at a large scale, and when when the gene, when the genetic modification began in the 70s and 80s, I've met with the scientists who did all that work. They said we genetically modified everything in every possible way, and it was a very clunky process of damaging genomes in every possible way, planting the seeds and see what came up in maybe one in 10,000 events, as they call them. One in 10,000 mutation events actually generated a viable plant that had a trait that they thought was valuable enough to be patented. But now, so back to your question, so there's a non-GMO strawberry. Well, unfortunately, Melinda, that's really important now that we say non-GMO strawberry. It's, again, heartbreaking that we have to make that determination. Now, Non-GMO water, non-GMO salt, non-GMO whatnot. Uh, and I'm not even sure whether non-GMO projects participates in that. I don't or, think they or, do. Or they, yeah, but it does spin that in some positive way. It does show you the power of that butterfly. Yes, it, it does. It's, it's so thorough a process. It is so deeply involved in the whole supply chain from soil to seed and on down that it's one of the few seals that really carries immediate weight with shoppers. That's really good to know. Well, the GMO crops that I'm most concerned about are the ones that are genetically engineered to withstand the spraying of an increasing number of herbicides because those herbicides do such damage to people who are trying to produce food that is not resistant to those herbicides. So Farmers who want to grow vegetables, for example, but they happen to live in a rural community where also there is corn and soy being sprayed and their crops are damaged as a result. So some of your listeners may not know what it's like to be in the heartland right now, but if you go out into the heartland in the middle of soy fields or cornfields, you will smell the stench of hydrocarbons. You will smell the stench of something that was made from synthetic oil, right? Deeply disturbing to your nose. It's nothing pleasant. 
But the other thing you'll notice is anybody growing vegetables in this upside-down, absurd agricultural world we live in, anyone who's growing vegetables has to put them inside of a hoop house, to put them inside of plastic or glass to prevent all of the agricultural herbicides from drifting onto their vegetables and either contaminating them or outright killing them. In Boulder County, we had a huge organic vegetable farm that was wiped out because the guy next door decided he wanted to desiccate his sunflowers before he harvested them. And he had an aerial sprayer go over there. And, uh, you know, it only had to drift an extra thousand feet and wiped out a farm, wiped out an investment. So this, yeah, I would be concerned about all of those. These are not good chemicals and they travel a long way and they have do permanent damage. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that keeps me up at night, Alan. Well, good. We we should call each other. (laughs) You know, in all seriousness, this comes down to your front lawn, if you don't have a garden in your front lawn like I do, but your parks and your playing fields for your kids and your pets. This is where some really bad stuff gets sprayed. And then you put your babies down there and they play in the grass and then they put their hands in their mouth and it gets on their skin. So we have this huge outbreak of eczema, autism, ADHD, obesity, diabetes, asthma, incredible increases in the rates of asthma. Well, this didn't used to happen. So we're trying to fund the conversion of those parks and playing fields and lawns to organic management. It saves money. It cuts down on water use by two-thirds. And then those young kids, teenagers playing in sports, the babies, the pets, are in an environment where they're safe, where their developmental cell regulation is not being disrupted, where their biome and their gut is not being permanently dysfunctionalized by these exotic chemicals. Everyone can take that action. That's right. It is why I am an advocate for organic food and farming. It is our best protection against all of these chronic illnesses that seem to be increasing in our society. It's frightening. I want to jump to a different topic because I know that you're informed about this, and it has to do with these alternative meat products. And I think people who are very well-intentioned are moving towards plant-based diets, including plant-based, highly processed foods, in an effort to protect our climate. I always say we want to be eating less meat but better meat and not these alternative meat products. Tell me your thoughts about these. I want to slow down and be very careful to say things that are understandable and memorable. So I'm going to use a rubric here, one, two, three, feed, ferments, and bio-waste. We've just been talking about industrial agriculture, concentration of power, synthetic fertilizers, massive pesticide use, contamination of the environment. That is the basis for synthetic meats. That is the basis for what they call precision fermentation. That's the basis for alternative protein. It's all of the corn, soy, and sugar products that we've been talking about that are converted into highly saturated sugar and protein steeps that then they start throwing gene-edited organisms into and, and putting in a fermenter to see what comes out, to grow, 
to make a cell line reproduce meat or to make a E. coli reproduce a color or a flavor or a texture to be used in these fake foods. So that's number one. When you hear plant-based synthetic food, it's industrial agriculture. It makes things worse, not better. On the far end of that is you put all that stuff in a fermentation vat and then you run it for 24 to 100 hours at 90 degrees. Eventually all the sugar gets eaten up and the organisms that you put in there are tired. And so you spin out the ingredient that you're hoping to get and then you have a thousand pounds of bio waste. That is medical biohazard waste that has to be incinerated. That's where your food is coming out of. Now, you can call it by whatever name you want, but the fact that they're using damaging industrial practices for the feed and they have to destroy that feedstock once it's used up, that should tell you that whatever they take out of that vat and call food is absolutely positively not good for you and not good for the planet. Now, did I get it right? Did that come through? I think you probably raised awareness for many people who, like I said, are well-intentioned but really have no clue because of the halo effects that the names project as well as the packaging, which you make very clear in your TED Talk. You know, just throw a lot of green on the packaging and all of a sudden it's healthy. The last thing I'd add on the alternative meat or alternative protein thing is they're hiding it under the term plant-based. Right. And I have talked to dozens of companies that make food made from plants who built up the idea of plant-based, and they are furious beyond description that this hyper-technology that's making everything worse in the environment and then creating biohazard waste and using all of these gene editing techniques and all the other things that they're growing that they don't even know they're growing and calling it plant-based. This is going to be the rift. Mark my words, in the, in the next few months, this is coming to the head. And people like Beyond Meat or Miyoko's or others who are now being sullied by the synthetic biology people using plant-based as their brand, that's going to be the fight of the decade. Watch how that turns out. You can't have both technologies under the same umbrella. Alan, we're out of time. So I'm going to ask you to give me a few seconds of a charge to leave our listeners with. So Melinda, I think to wrap up, you can see just how skeptical I am and occasionally how angry I get that I'm being lied to and deceived constantly. But we also have to find the joy of knowledge and the joy of finding places where we can play safely and food that we can eat to keep our families healthy. That's the joy that I have to make sure I experience every day. Yeah, I'm fighting this big public battle against people who are deeply confused. But then I come back and I have dinner with my family and I take a walk on open space and I remember that the battle's worth it and that I have a I have an obligation to feel good about the positive places where we're going to where we're all going to end up eventually. 
Thank you for your work, Alan, and thank you for being my guest. I've got to close and thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. But most of all, I want to thank my guest, Mr. Alan Lewis, Vice President for Government Affairs, Stakeholder Relations, and Organic Compliance for Natural Grocers by Vitamin Cottage. I will provide a link to his excellent TED Talk and check out his comments on LinkedIn. They're excellent. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Thank you.